0: good morning it is such a privilege and honor even to be standing here many of you i recognize uh, a lot of family members friends people that i've known and i'll tell you whenever god saved me that was one of the first burdens that i had was to talk to other people about christ and i've always been pretty full of myself and arrogant um And I wouldn't have imagined that I would be getting to face as many of you that I know and have known and almost feel like I'm not worthy to be here because so many of you know so much about me and who I was and what I've done and what I've been that I don't want the Word of God to be disregarded. I don't want the truth that is proclaimed today by God's grace and by His will to be neglected. I don't want anyone to be sitting there and say, well... That's just old decks up there, you know. I want to take myself out of the way, in a sense, and just set before you God's Word. This is our authority. The Creator of all things has spoken, and that means we're accountable to it. And that's what we're going to be considering today. Um, I'll ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. While you're turning there, typically um, whenever I preach, I, I like to go verse by verse and exposit a particular text. Any of us that have had our elementary reading class, we know, we know context clues. If you don't know the context, you're not going to understand what's going on. And I know that's the way that the Word of God is taught here in this place. Um, today, I'm going to be dealing with more of a particular topic, but we'll be primarily considering in light of, of, of this text, Acts chapter 2 title of the sermon is The Kingdom of God in the Local Church. So if you'll begin reading with me, Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 38 and read a few verses. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and of prayers. Bow with me once more in prayer. Merciful, Heavenly Father, oh. Lord, I ask that you would help us this morning. Lord, that you would receive all the glory due your name, that we wouldn't flounder in the wind and be stirred around by every wind of doctrine and change and influences of our culture, but that we would be drawn to you, our rock that we heard about. From the psalmist, Lord, the one who does not change, the only source of certainty, Lord. You are the one who dispels chaos and confusion. Lord, I pray that we would be helped, that you would speak through me, and that I would disappear behind your word today. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the considerations this morning, um, I've been... For a long time now, um, developing a conviction, and part of it has to do with what Brother Ronnie talked about in our time in the church in San Antonio. Um, There was a, a seriousness in the church there and a real sense of community, and we were involved in that place. And for me to say that, well, we sat under some particular teaching, whether you're talking about the doctrines of grace or something else, Many things played into the, the change that the Lord worked in us and the way that we began to see our lives and our roles in the world as Christians. Um, so much of our culture, of our country, sees Christianity as the cherry on top of an ice cream, that you get your life together and you go to church and you raise good moral kids, and that this is Christianity. It's just a step above. It's just a moral accolade to be a Christian. And that's the way that even those who hold to the doctrines of grace or have taken Christianity seriously, it's just an addendum on their lives. And they try to fit everything that goes on in their lives into the church. And they don't see that their involvement in the church is to mark and categorize the rest of their lives. In other words, what takes place here and the ministry that's done here is so that every one of us might be equipped to go out there with the gospel. This is this is the biblical attitude towards the church. And our experiences there and the community that we had there, and in light of texts like this, is part of what produced that in us. So we're going to work from the negative this morning. But here's the verse from Acts two that we just read from. I want you to consider. We'll come back to this. Verse forty two. So this is day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and preaches 3,000 people get saved. They're baptized. They're added to the church. They gladly received His Word. And then what? What happens to the church? Why is there a church in the world today? Why do we have denominations and churches? Why are people still talking about Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years later? What's the explanation? This guy died a criminal's death, but we still are talking about him. And we still meet one day a week in particular to come together and to hear about him. Why? Why? How did how did this happen? And I'll tell you part of it is because God is the author of the church and God is the one who set in order the church and called the church to live and exist in a certain way. He's given us the structure and at the very first fruits of this church in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, here's what we read. Those who were added to the church, 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Just focus, as we, as we consider several passages from God's Word today, consider that first part of 42, they continued steadfastly in first, the Apostles' Doctrine. Now, there's a lot of talk today about different denominations, different belief systems, and there's a call to this ecumenicalism that says, why can't we all come together and sing kumbaya and get along? Or, man, I just, it's so awesome to see the President of the United States praying and having Christian people around him. And we celebrate and we rejoice over things like that because it's a little mark of something Christian. And we settle for something that's so far below the standard of the New Testament that it's ridiculous. It's laughable. What does light have to do with darkness? Well, I just want to show you something here. He says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and in breaking of bread and prayers. I'm going to tell you there's no true Christian unity. There's no fellowship. There's no breaking of bread. That's a reference to meals together, but also the Lord's Supper. You can't even really pray with somebody if you don't believe the same God. If your doctrine concerning Jesus Christ is not the same, There's no Christian fellowship. That's just point blank. And he says it from the very beginning. What signifies this church is that they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Let me ask you, where did the apostles get their doctrine? From Jesus Christ. Jesus taught them for the three years that he ministered to them. And whenever he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, came and began to reveal and open up all that Jesus had taught to them. And so, pause with me there for a moment and let's consider something. What do you suppose is the single most common characteristic of the culture we live in today? What is it? When you look out at it, the world that we live in, you look at the the what characterizes, when I say world, I'm talking about outside of the church. The lost world, what characterizes the world that we live in? It's confusion. Confusion. I mean, this, the list goes on and on. You could talk about homosexual marriage. Am I allowed to marry someone of the same sex? Am I allowed to marry a dog? Does it matter? What does marriage mean? Confusion. Or the, what bathroom do I use? Gender identity crisis. Confusion. And you've got all of these big heads speaking to these issues. And trying to offer clarity. And then here we are, the average people, standing back, listening to these people give their opinions and express their positions. And we don't know who to believe. So typically we find the person that lines most up with us. And then we get behind that person. But the point is that the culture is marked by confusion. And here's a big one. Can we even be certain about anything at all? Is the truth relative? Is there such thing as absolute truth? No. No. The spirit of the age is confusion. And we might be tempted to believe that this confusion that marks this age that we live in is somehow accidental. That, well, they're just ignorant, you know, they, in the sense of they don't know any better. You know, that it's not their fault. They're just not educated enough. It's a, it's a result of ignorance. That's where this confusion comes from. Or perhaps we might say, well, no, the confusion is the result of you've got a lot of smart people that have valid positions and they're all having, their positions are competing with one another. So you've got competing valid positions that come together and here's confusion. Confusion. Well, I would argue that this confusion is much more intentional than that. But let's ask the question. Is every position valid? Is every opinion equally valid? Those who propagate this type of stuff, I've heard this illustration, and it it's it's almost funny. I'll even use it for myself. But they say that, just speaking of religion, but they also use it about truth in general, what the truth is. So they say that people in different religions that are seeking after God are like four blind men touching an elephant. And they say that, you know, the one man, he touches the elephant's trunk, and he thinks that it's a, a tree or something. Another man touches his side and thinks, well, it's a big boulder. Another man touches the elephant's tail and says, it's a rope. And then another man touches his his tusk and thinks it's a tree branch. And it's like, well, you know what? These four blind men, you know, they're all seeking after the same thing. They're all seeking after the same God or the same truth. It's just their different perspective. And so they have a different perspective on truth and God. But they're all really doing the same thing. Can I point something out to you? that is glaringly obvious, they're all dead wrong. The fact that their perspective says it's something else doesn't change the reality that it's an elephant. And they're wrong, absolutely wrong. But that's what the culture tries to indoctrinate us to believe, to accept all positions as valid. And I want to argue that there is an absolute standard. There is an absolute truth that we can cling to. And this, this push, the reason I say that it's intentional, that it's by design, is because it's the same thing that Satan's been doing from the beginning. Think about this with me. I'm trying to show you how confusion is tied together with the autonomy of man. Confusion leads to the point where people just decide for themselves what's right. That's what Satan did in the beginning. He said he questioned God's word to Eve. Did God really say? Did God really say? He introduces this confusion, this uncertainty. And then what's the response? What's the result? Adam and Eve decide we will decide for ourselves what's good and evil. We'll take this fruit and we'll be like God, knowing and determining good and evil for ourselves. This this purposeful, intentional confusion leads to that type of thinking that puts you on the throne. It's a master stroke. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 25 says this, We lie down in our shame and our confusion covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Our confusion covers us. Or James 3.16 says, For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. So if we say that the truth is elusive and relative, we remove accountability. In other words, if there's an absolute standard, then you're accountable to that absolute standard. If truth is absolute, then it applies to you. If you can look at God and you can say, well, I think God's like this. Somebody else thinks God's like that. God's okay with this. He's not okay with that. And there's not an objective standard to appeal to. You can do whatever you want. And if you don't like what someone else says, all you say is, well, that's their opinion. That's what they think. (coughs) But is that our God? Is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the New Testament and the Old, the God of the Bible, is He the author of confusion? Has He not entered into creation itself and condescended to us, first in His Word and then in His Son, to show us this is what I'm like? We're not left grasping in the dark. We've been shown God's purpose in condescending to us is to reveal to us who He is. We can see God this way. But I say again that this confusion is precisely the aim and the push of this culture. And they rejoice in it. They rejoice in the confusion. Confusion and ignorance are two primary primary marks of unregenerate man. If if you want to know what is man apart from God, he's ignorant and he's confused. You can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll consider this. Ephesians four, starting in verse seventeen. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Who being past feeling have given themselves over. They've given themselves over unto lasciviousness. To work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. You hear that language? I'm arguing that the confusion and the ignorance that marks unregenerate man is a willful ignorance. It's ignorance that we bring upon ourselves. How many times do people not want to know what the rules are? Because they think if they don't know the rules, they're not accountable to it. You get pulled over by a police officer. I didn't know what the speed limit was. You think that your ignorance will excuse you. Ignorance before God is no excuse. And it's a willful ignorance. It says that they have given themselves over. And unbelievers are alienated from God. But look with me at verse 20. According to verse 20, the difference between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians have learned Christ. Now, this is significant in a culture that boasts in its ignorance and its mysticism. Most people think today that the way to be super spiritual is to just get all thought and reason out of yourself and just meditate where there's nothing but a blank slate and just let God fill you. The argument of Scripture is that Christ is to be learned, that the gospel is cognitive, that it's logical. As I said, and we'll continue to repeat this this morning, God is not the author of confusion. He's just. There's an equity with God. What He does is right. And you can look at it and see, see what God has done. In other words, the state of man is this. Apart from Christ, He's willfully confused and ignorant. But what's He ignorant about? In relationship to what? Am I saying that an unregenerate man in the world today has no ability to accomplish anything? Can he not build spaceships and rockets and do all wonderful things in medicine? Am I saying that a, that a man that's unregenerate has no ability to do anything with his mind? That he's completely confused and ignorant? No. The problem is, this ignorance and this confusion has to do with God. He's confused about God. He doesn't know who God is. And if he does worship a God, if he's not a professing atheist, if he does worship God, his God is vague and nebulous. Because a God that you can't really know anything about is a God you're not accountable to. In other words, if God is out there somewhere and you can't say this is true, this is what God loves, this is what God hates, if there's not a standard, then you're not, you don't think you're accountable to it. And that's really the reason why people profess atheism. They're just trying to escape God in their own way. That's the thing. If God's real, they're accountable for what they do in their room alone on the computer. They're accountable for the time they spend with the person who's not their wife alone in a bedroom. They're accountable for these things before God, for the lies that they've told and cheating on their taxes and all that marks us as this wicked fallen race that we are before God. If God's not real, then you think somehow you can escape Him. But the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What do we say? Psalm 50, verse 21. And this is the end of these things. You either deny that God exists or you do this. What we read in Psalm 50 and verse 21. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes God's looking down and he says you thought that I was like you and that's what lead that's what's led to by this sort of confusion about God about this ignorance of who God is leads to making of God that looks more like you than anything else and just if you go and you look at like the Greek mythology and you look at Zeus and others in in Greek mythology you know what they did they did the same thing that those people in the day did They were involved in orgies and all sorts of sexual sin and perversions. That's what their gods did because that's what they did. They made their gods into the image of themselves. And that's all the strivings of unregenerate man is to bring God down to his level so that he feels like a god and make himself God and the decider of good and evil, of right and of wrong. This is the mark of the culture that we live in. So if we look at this confusion and you say, brother, I thought you were talking about the kingdom of God and the church. All I've been hearing about is the world and what's going on out there. Stay with me. Stay with me. But before we get to the church, when we're examining this confusion and chaos and misery in the world today, you don't just go from there to here. Something's got to happen. And that's how most churches present it. It's okay if you're living in sin and you're rejecting the things of God. Come be welcome with us and we'll rub shoulders with you and we'll have a good time and eat out of casserole dishes. Is God not involved in bringing people from out there into here? Does God have nothing to do with it? How do you go from being in this state of confusion and misery and ignorance? How are you delivered from that? Because we read in Ephesians 4 that they're alienated from the life of God. They're separated from God while they remain in that state. So what has to happen? Psalm 111 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. So we start with this. True knowledge, true understanding. The opposite of this confusion and chaos, certainty. That's the word certainty. Starts with the fear of the Lord. Knowing God, seeing God as He is and loving Him. That is the source and the beginning of all wisdom. And then Proverbs 1, 7, likewise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you stop for a moment and you think about the world as it is, and I'm not just talking about, you know, we live relatively insulated here in the Bible Belt in Oklahoma, Baptist Church on every corner, or some church on every corner at least. We're insulated from a lot of things, but I want to share with you something. Because I want to emphasize this point that this confusion and chaos, it's an issue of the nature of man. It's not something where a man's born into the world as a blank slate and somehow he gains a few things about him that are not good that God doesn't like. No, this is in his very nature. Do you remember the story, surely, of Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroyed them? Because of Abraham's pleading, there are angels sent down into the city to bring Lot and his family out. And the men of the city wanted to take these angels because of their beauty and glory and sleep with them. And Lot pleads with them, He even offers his own daughter, which is strange, I know, but he offers her, he's just wanting to protect these men, these angels. And finally, what has to happen is these wicked men with this nature that is opposed to God, full of confusion about the very basic level of marriage and relationships between men and women. God strikes them blind. What's always stood out to me as interesting is the text says they continued in their blindness, groping after the door. I mean, just put yourself in that position for a minute. Imagine that you're doing something terrible, but you're doing it with your friends, and you're having a good time, and you're pursuing something. If every one of you were struck blind at the exact moment, what would you do? I mean, surely you think that you would stop for a second. Whoa, something's going on here. They don't even let their blindness stop them from their sinful lusts and their desires. They continue groping after the door, even in this state of blindness. That is the picture of the world. We sugarcoat it so much because we're so insulated. But that's the heart of man, the confusion and the chaos. (coughs) But how is it that we come to have this godly fear and understanding? What's got to happen? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says this, "...for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness..." has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The very God who said, let there be light, has to look at this corrupt mass of man, of ignorant and confused and sinful man, and has to say, let there be light. That's what has to happen. God must change them. That's what we read here. In the context, actually in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says that in their case, those who reject the gospel, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. So you realize how desperate this situation is? Man, outside of Christ, is full of sin and ungodliness. And he loves the sin. And he's got to deal with that on his own level. He loves it. But then on top of that, (coughs) he's twice blind. He's blind to the truth. And then Satan, the God of this world, is blinding him. You're going to tell me that man has a hope apart from God doing something? The living God doing something? God is the one who must give us this understanding. It's God Himself who dispels the confusion and darkness. That's what happens. I'll read it again. That God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. Okay, that sounds really nice, doesn't it? What has He done whenever He causes this light to shine into our hearts? He gives us the light of the knowledge of what? Of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what man is missing. He's ignorant. He's confused about God. And God says, I'm going to put the knowledge of myself in you. And I'm going to show you clearly in a way that you can understand because it's going to be in the person of my son who's going to become a man and be like you. One that you can relate with. This is what God has done and what God must do to destroy this confusion and darkness. So when you see the glory of God in the face of Christ, the confusion is shattered. All of a sudden, you see, that's Him. That's this God I've been alienated from in the person of Christ. That's what you see when God does this. So, we're kind of at somewhat of a turning point here. But perhaps at this point in the message, many of you are ready to say, Amen! Away with this nonsense about the relativity of truth. That's foolishness, brother. You know, we go to church here. I know who your elders are. I know you don't believe that nonsense, hopefully. And maybe you're even ready to say, away with this unknown God that doesn't hold you accountable. Well, before we get too carried away in condemning the non-Christian world about these things, let's examine how this damnable lie of relativism, has crept into the church. This is serious. Relativism has crept into the church. So let's start by asking this question. What do you mean whenever you say the word, or when you say the church? Are you talking about the invisible, spiritual, mystical body of saints? Um, Is the church measurable, in other words? Whenever you say the church... Whenever you say the church has got to get their act together. Are you talking about this group of people that is made up of Christians all over the planet? Are you talking about the local bodies, the local assemblies? Well, I think more importantly, what matters a whole lot more than what you mean when you say the church is what the Bible means when it says the church. What God has spoken and what God says is much more significant than what you or I think. Infinitely more so. And I'm going to tell you that the Greek word for church in the New Testament is ekklesia, which simply means assembled or gathered ones. And the vast majority of the times that God uses in the scriptures the term church, he's talking about a specific church made up of particular people in a particular place. Some examples of this. Acts 13.1, speaking of the church, which is at Antioch. Romans 16, 1, the the church at Centuria. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 is the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the church in Asia. 2 Corinthians 1, 1, the church at Corinth. Colossians 4, 15, the church at Laodicea. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, the church in Thessalonica. And I could go on and on and on, telling you that this is a contextual church, a church that can be measured. And there are many believe today that believe in something that's kind of known as the universal church theory. And the way that they present it is very unbiblical and dangerous. And the reason that it's so dangerous is because, like all dangerous things, there's a grain of truth to it. People that suggest that the church is simply believers in all places at all times and nothing more than that. Well, they're about half right. The church does biblically recognize such a thing as a as as a church, the Bible does, excuse me, recognize an institution known as the church that is made up of all believers at all times. Let's consider some, some scriptures on this. Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Notice the singular term here for body. And he is the head of the body, the church. This is one body. Local churches are made up of many bodies. There's many bodies that make up local churches, but he says the one body. And then if we look at Ephesians 4.4, there's one body and one spirit, and even as you're called in one hope of your calling. So, again, the reference to the one body and the one spirit. So, the spirit that is in the church, those who've had this light from God, this understanding, the darkness within them has been dispensed in the person of Christ, and they've seen God. Their confusion about God and their ignorance about God is gone. They begin to see God rightly. These people share one spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God is not divided. And so there's a sense in which all of us who are united by the Holy Spirit share in this thing we call the church. And then Matthew 16 and verse 18 says, "...and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church." and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus makes reference to his church. And there are other considerations throughout the scriptures that talk about this idea of a church that's a, a, a one organism that is for all time and in all places those who make up the bride of Christ. So maybe you say, okay, closed book. That's what the church is. Church is just this universal Organism, this universal thing that exists that's invisible, that's not measurable. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's let's, let's examine these two two positions. You've got the church is invisible. You can't measure it. It's just Christians everywhere at all times. Then you've got this other side that says, no, the church is local. The church is in different places. Churches are separate from one another and they're autonomous and they're able to decide things and they function in a local setting. Which is it? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So, we've got one body, the principle of the church, the one body that's made up of many bodies here in this text. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, or have been, we have all been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So what are you talking about? Body and members and members and bodies. Maybe this is confusing, confusing for you, but this is what he's saying. That there is one body known as the church that's made up of Christians for all times. And he's saying this one body that we call the church, universal or invisible, is made up of individual bodies that we call local. That's not the only principle that he's going to say here because he's going to go on and talk about the different members within a local body having different gifts and being able to minister to one another. In other words, here's what we need to understand here today. That whenever he's talking about this members of the body, okay, I've got a foot on my body. What use is my foot apart from the rest of the body? If you just saw a foot sitting over there, I mean, this isn't the Adams family, a hand laying over there crawling around doing its own thing. It's pointless and useless apart from the body. And its its value is in how it serves the body. Understand? If you take a member of a body and separate it from the rest of the body, it becomes useless. It loses its value. And that's the principle that he's drawing on. That... The strength, the reason that there's still a church, we're still talking about this Jesus of Nazareth today, is because throughout the history, God has continued establishing local churches. Local churches, physical, actual local churches that pursue the call of the global or universal church. The Great Commission, what we've been called to do. So each member is a representation and manifestation of the whole body. And it's like this. If one of you that's a member of Sovereign Grace Bible Church here in Ada, if you're on your college campus over at ECU and you're walking around, guess what? You're a representation of this body. What comes out of your mouth is representing this church locally. Did you know that? People are going to associate the things that you say with this place. And did you know that as you do that, I can give you an example of a church that I was a member at, that I met a man who... He said that's my church and I wouldn't even go there because I thought this man doesn't know God from the man on the moon. What he said to me about that church turned me away. We ended up joining that church when we were there over three years. Praise God. But the point is is that what you say and how you live and conduct yourselves reflects upon this church. Do you suppose that Engaging in ministry and telling people about Jesus and theology and talking about things even on somewhere like the Internet has no implications about this place? Why do you suppose it is that God has established elders and leaders in the church to guard you, to protect you, to oversee your soul for your own good, for the glory of the gospel? If you as a member here go out and say things that aren't true about the gospel, that aren't true about Christ, it's a poor representation of this body as well as the whole body. You're misrepresenting Christ. And I'll argue at this point that it's the local manifestations. In other words, we read in the Bible about church discipline. That if someone's in sin, you call them out and you tell them they're sin. And eventually, they may even be removed from the church if they don't repent. Tell me how that's going to happen online. If there's no local manifestation, what, do you just post a YouTube podcast calling a brother out? And what body is it that you remove him from? I'm going to tell you, when it comes to things like that, the local church has no authority to remove someone from the kingdom of heaven. That's not what church discipline's about. When you remove someone from a church, you're removing them, you're calling them to repentance. You're saying your practical living doesn't match what the church is called to do and be. You're calling them to repentance, but you're not removing them from Christ. You can't. If they're in Him, they're sure, they're fixed. But both of these aspects, these realities of the church, are essential. If you neglect the local church, if you say that the local church isn't real, you have no context in which to obey any of the New Testament commands for practical living and involvement. You can't practice church discipline. You can't obey those who have authority or rule over you in the church, the elders. You can't You can't love one another in the way that Christ tells us to love one another. You realize that Jesus says that this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, the love you have for one another, right after he'd washed their feet. If you're not able to love and serve in that context, you can't even express to the world that you belong to him, apart from a local context. I know there are a lot of parachurch ministries out there that do things outside of the context of the church in the name of Christianity. There's no accountability. And God, once again, is not the author of confusion. But likewise, if you deny this invisible universal church, that God is building a kingdom that man doesn't see. There's this building made up of stones that God is the one who's making. He's the one who's building. This invisible body, if you deny that, then you divide Christ. Because then all the references to individual churches becomes confusing. What do you mean? You have to have both. Both are essential and both are necessary for us to be in obedience to God. So, the debate over, and maybe you haven't been affected by this. Maybe you haven't heard people. <clears throat> Let me just tell you, give some, give some practical practical illustration. I've seen more than one family. They always kind of start out the same. They start saying weird things like this. We just need to get back to the church in Acts. Why aren't we as useful? Why, doesn't, why, doesn't, why don't we see the things that they saw? We just need to get back to the church in Acts. Before you know it, they're meeting in their living room, and they're the pastor. They don't go to church anywhere, and they're virtually uninvolved in the world because they reject the structure and order that God has created. In other words, you're not willing to hear a man who God has placed in authority over you tell you to repent or call you to live a life of obedience to God's Word. You won't have it. You won't have this man to rule over you that God has established and placed there. Let me just read this. I've been quoting it all morning. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not the author of confusion. How many of you have ever heard that? That God is not the author of confusion? Have you ever heard that? Do you realize what the rest of that verse says? (coughs) But of peace as in all the churches of the saints. It's talking about in the church. If you see chaos and confusion and ignorance in the church and uncertainty and autonomy in the church, that's not godly. God is not the author of that. He's the author of He's not the author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches. (coughs) And here's the connection between what we started considering in the beginning, the confusion that marks unregenerate man, and the confusion that's taken over in the churches today. What has been the result of all this confusion about the church? It's been the intended result. People either say that Christ is divided by all of our denominational differences, And independent churches, or they say that there's no local church. They either deny one or both of these these doctrines that we've been discussing this morning. But I want you to know it's ultimately no different than the doctrines of those who cling to an unknown God. The God who is not knowable. The God who is vague and ominous. You can't really know. ambiguous. You can't really know who He is or what He's commanded. (coughs) That God that we spoke of earlier, He's... Nebulous and vague and unknown, and I suppose perhaps it's the vague and nebulous and unknown God that inhabits the vague, nebulous, unknown church. If it's not measurable, God's purpose is, why do you suppose it is that you're still on this planet? If you're a Christian here today, why didn't God just pull you out of this mess? Ever ask yourself that? It's for His own glory. His church has been called to manifest His glory. That happens in the local church, in the local body. To disregard the authority of the local church is man once again declaring his autonomy. Because that's what we do. Think about this with me. (coughs) The man who rejects God and says that God doesn't exist or God can't really be known, he's just saying I'm going to get to decide for myself what's right and wrong. That's the same thing that happens in the church. If there's no clarity... We'll use this this confusion that exists in churches as an excuse for our own autonomy. Well, he's just a man, you know, just a church. I don't really like that church. I'm packing up and going somewhere else because I don't agree with him about this thing. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Using the confusion as an excuse to do what you ultimately want to do. You ultimately make yourself the authority. But thankfully, the one who is not the author of confusion is the same one who is the author of the Bible. We have a a source of certainty. God has spoken. We have certainty here. Certainty in what God has spoken. Now briefly, I just want to consider with you, just briefly, what has God said to us concerning this church, these local manifestations that make up this glorious church what has he said to us about it turn with me to first Timothy chapter 3 I partly learned how to preach from my dad and if your fingers aren't sore from turning pages I'm not doing my job verse 14. <clears throat> Paul's words to Timothy, he says, these things I write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. So these things I write to you, hoping that I come to you, but just in case I don't make it, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Do you know what precedes? That statement here in 1 Timothy. We won't take the time. Go and read it for yourself in 1 Timothy 3. But you know what precedes this in Timothy? He's talking about the offices in the church. He's talking about the structure of the church. I'm writing so that you won't be flapping in the wind, chasing every wind of doctrine. And being swept away. He said, I'm establishing something. The same as those who in the beginning of the church in Acts continued in the apostles' doctrine. That's what he's appealing to continue in this doctrine that we've received the pillar and ground of the truth is what he calls it and we've been given these structures and offices for the church turn with me to first or to titus excuse me chapter one just a couple of books over to the right For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou should have set in in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So Paul's writing to Titus and he says, The reason I left you there in Crete was to set the church in order. And now I'm going to tell you how to do that. You want to know how to set the church in order according to God? By establishing elders. By establishing offices within the church. And I know that this church is elder-led, and that you recognize a plurality of elders. And I believe that's biblical and right. But is it enough to say, we recognize elders, and that's just the end of it? Is there any practical relationship where the offices in the church are contributing to your lives, to your sanctification, to your living a holy life, to your growth, and your ability to minister to saints, minister outside of these walls? Are you growing in your knowledge of these things? Is there a personal, ongoing relationship? Because if you're not, it doesn't matter what you call yourself. There's lots of cults that use the language of elders. So what? Where's where's the practical response here? Are you honest enough with the leadership in this church? And I can say this because I'm not an elder here. Are you honest enough with them for them to be able to serve you in this role? Is that opportunity even here? Or on these embarrassing, shameful things, issues of sin, are these the things that, well... Now, I don't need to hear what they say. I'll just determine for myself. I'll reject this order. I'll cling to confusion. And I'll appeal to the fact that, well, they may not agree anyways. You cling to that confusion and supposed ignorance to say that you're going to do what you want to do. I'll handle it myself. We plainly see that God's design for the church is to be overseen by certain offices, primarily elders. But how is the church to function in other aspects of daily living? Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We want to know, what does this look like practically, brother? You're telling us that God has established order and structure in the church and that that comes in the form of the offices and the elders, but what is that, how does that work out practically? Acts 13, verse 2 and 3 says this, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I've called them. This is the Apostle Paul. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So here's the church functioning in this position of authority being used by the Holy Spirit to set apart Paul and Barnabas for their missionary journeys. Why is that relevant? Why is that significant? It's not the seminary that recognizes those who are called by God to work in this world. It's the church. It's the church. Primarily, first we see it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, set them apart. The Holy Spirit sets these men apart to serve Him in ministry, and missions. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? Through the church. Separate from me Barnabas and Saul. And this is that not nebulous, unknown church. This is the church in Antioch, if you read verse 1. But then turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Back just a little bit more. The structure, the orderliness that God has established in the church. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read just a little bit. Start in verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Stop for a 2nd That now what happens? The numbers, you start with a group of two or three or a smaller number. You have relative peace. You can get along. The more people that get there, the more chaos, the more different ideas. The confusion starts to swell. You need something. You need a a structure, a system. You need something to help govern how you operate. Because you're not all going to agree all the time. And what does he say? Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Here's more structure. They're establishing, they're going back to that Acts chapter 2 thing of continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We're not going to neglect the Word. In other words, there are priorities here. There's a structure of priorities, and the Word of God is at the top. We're not going to neglect the Word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Again, this priority of the proclamation and ministry of the Word and prayer being at the focal point of the church. He says and he establishes, they're establishing deacons. This is the role. You ever wonder what deacons are for? This is it. To serve. But then notice this, because we're talking about the church, the purpose of the church, the structure and order of the church. Verse 5 says, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. What I'm not advocating is that you have a church that's ran by tyrant elders that boss everybody around and everything. The church was all pleased. And if you remember in Acts, they that gladly received Peter's word were the ones who were baptized and added to the church. There's There's a unity here. There's just not uniformity. We're not wanting to all be the same, but we come together in these things. This is how the church operates and functions. And without deacons, the elders... Couldn't focus on the ministry of the word here. And then Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hey, I'm just going to read it Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. Do I really need to give any interpretation? Submit yourself to those who have rule over you. Obey them. Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. God has established an order in the local church. And I know that you, you see this, but my question is, does this have any practical effect? Where's the reality of this in your life? If there's an issue in your marriage, what's your first step? Do you put more stock in a psychologist or a counselor or something else? If your finances are struggling, where, do you, where are you looking to? Has God not given an order, a rule, a structure within the church for these things? Yes, He has. He has. And apart from the local church, commands like this one, to obey those that have rule over you, have no context. It's not just that we believe the five points or whatever, or that we um, get our doctrine in a nice pretty bow. You see, whenever that verse in Acts I read says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine... It doesn't just mean they continue to nod and say, "Uh uh-huh, I agree, I agree. They continued in. Their lives were affected by the doctrines. Their lives were lived in according to the doctrines that the apostles preached and proclaimed. And then finally this morning, there may be, I don't know, a lot of faces, a lot of folks I don't recognize here. There may be many of you that you sit here and think, what does this have to do with me? So... you know, are what you telling me that I need to join this church here now today, and that I need to spend the rest of my life pursuing to submit myself to this this structure, this institution here? Is that it? Well, again, let me just compel you with this: if you are outside of Christ, if your if your life is marked by chaos and confusion and disorderliness that's not consistent with the call of God for His people, you don't need to join a church. Not in that sense. You need Jesus Christ. You need to be born again. I'm not advocating a sacralism here. We heard about Rome this morning and how many ways that they've gone astray in the equipping hour and how they demand a false authority based on something other than the Word of God. But we look in the Word of God and see this. You want to hear some authority? You want to hear what God commands you to do? God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. This doesn't apply to you. It doesn't matter to you. It doesn't matter if you live the rest of your life being obedient to the church, serving in the church. People do it every day. That's the mark of so many people that they plug into a church. They'll be the best church member there is. They tithe regularly. They show up for all the events. They always say, Amen, sit in the front row perhaps. That will do you no good when you stand before God. It doesn't matter how well other people think of your family. I mean... The only reason these things are even significant is that if you're a Christian, you've been saved out of something and into something. You've been saved from your confusion and your chaos and brought into God's family, God's house. You've become a child of God. And God's name, God's glory is shown whenever His people live how He's called us to live. That's why there's reason to be concerned about these things for the health of this church that God, that Jesus Christ purchased with His own blood. And if you haven't come to know Christ, then it really isn't going to matter to you. What I've been saying, these doctrines of the church, the significance of the local, local church. Why does it matter, you ask me? Why, is these, why are these things significant? Because I spoke earlier about a God who is absolute, who has an absolute standard. And you know what that standard is? perfect righteousness. Perfect holiness. God will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. And that means you. And it means me. We're all going to stand before God. And His absolute standard, His requirements in the law must be met. And you haven't met them. You can't. You will not have an excuse when you stand before Him because you haven't met them. Ronnie said, I was wild when I was a kid. Yes, I was. I haven't met Him. I have no hope before God in and of myself. There's nothing I can plead before God except this. Your wrath, your wrath that I deserved was upon Jesus Christ, your son. He bought for himself a people, a bride, a church. This is important because Christ bled and died for the church. We've got to take this seriously because our Christianity doesn't just exist in our own realm. It doesn't just exist how we see things. That's the mark of the world, of unregenerate man. It's the one who says, i do it my way. No, you've been bought with a price not silver and gold or anything corruptible, but the blood of the Son of God, if you belong to Him. And if you don't, you might convince yourself that this wishy-washy, new-agey stuff about no absolutes, no authority, no absolute standard, that you're going to stand before God and say, appeal to your confusion and say, well, I didn't know. I did the best I could. Depart from me. I never knew you will be the last grace you hear, because it will be grace to have heard the voice of the living God before you're cast into hell. This is why this is important, because this is what God has done. Throughout the testimony of Scripture, God is giving us His Word, condescending to us, moving towards building His people. see shadows of that in Israel and the fulfillment through Christ in the New Testament church. I pray that I'm so encouraged. I have been this morning. And again, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I'm encouraged whenever I come here and I see men standing up declaring truths. And I know of other brothers having conversations. And I see the hand of God in this place. But do you know that the church isn't the elders? The church isn't the elders plus a couple of faithful men or a couple of deacons. The church locally as saints of God that assemble together you're part of that number if you're a member here my prayer for you for myself I mean this is condemning towards me as it is anyone I'm sure is that we stop asking what what is the world what is the culture most importantly what do I think the church ought to look like and how it ought to function and what says the scriptures what is God spoke? And I pray that if you're not in Christ, oh, you would flee to him. That you would flee to him. Bow with me in prayer. Merciful, Heavenly Father. Lord, all that we can appeal to is mercy. Lord, your word tells us that your standard doesn't change and it doesn't lessen. Lord, you don't. Great on a curve, Lord, that you have tried us and found us wanting in every imaginable way. But in spite of our sin and in spite of the fact that we had rebelled and turned from you, you, you sent your Son. You condescended in your Son to us that we might have life in you. Lord, I pray that you give us the grace, the humility to take seriously what you've said about this this organism of yours, the church, and how it is to function in the world today. Lord, thank you again for these people, for everyone who is able to make it this morning, and I pray that by the Holy Spirit that these truths will have an impact that is eternal. In Jesus' name, Amen.